This podcast was made possible thanks to Drama Victoria. Hello and welcome to The Aside, a podcast for drama teachers and students. I'm Nick Waxman and today we are speaking with Tim Roach, one of the members of the Drama Victoria Committee of Management, about a show he saw this week on the VCE Drama Playlist 2020. Black Ties by John Harvey and Tainui Tukiweho, presented at the Art Centre with Ilbajiri Theatre and Te Rahia Theatre. Just before we jump into our conversation about this play, it should be noted this was not recorded in the studio, so the audio quality is not as high as it usually is. Without any further ado, I bring you Tim Roach on Black Ties. Welcome, Tim. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. I look forward to chatting this show through. I haven't seen it. You have rave reviews already. You loved it, I hear. Yeah, it was absolutely fantastic. I thought it was just incredibly powerful, but also very funny, very relevant. Loved it. So can you explain the conventions used in this performance and how they enhanced uh, the, the performance style by going beyond reality of life as lived? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I can speak for the creative team, obviously, but certainly from what I saw, uh, there were really there was a really nice contrast between the elements of epic theatre, which primarily took place in the first act. Uh, so there were lots of transformations of place. They sort of jumped around between Sydney and the Blue Mountains, Melbourne and New Zealand, uh, and they sort of jumped back and forth in time. You were never really sure um, when they were, but they kind of provided a bit of a um, a bit of a timeline that, that you were able to link back to. Uh, and then the whole of the second act was actually just set uh, in a wedding. So all of the tables during inter- intermission were transformed into tables at a wedding and all of the actors moved between those tables uh, as though we were invited guests, friends and family and that kind of stuff. So there were wedding wedding programs on the tables and there was food and there were lollies and, you know, little thank you cards. It was it was quite an impressive transformation, I thought. Uh, and what other conventions do you think they were, they were using throughout the piece? So, I mean, definitely in terms of immersive theatre, the actors were moving between the between the audience. They were talking to us all the time. Um, they used theatre technologies in a way which helped to transform place uh, everywhere they went. There was a projection uh, behind them which served as a backdrop. Uh, so they also used song really nicely to punctuate different trans- transformations of time. Between scenes, the live band would come on and they would play songs which sort of mirrored the mood or had um, implications for the ideas that had just been explored in that scene. So in terms of, as I said, in terms of conventions of epic theatre, I think that was pretty prevalent um, in Act 1. And then the band actually became the wedding band in Act 2. So um, we're able to see them. I and did you notice a clear two different use of transformation of objects? Two different Sorry. eclectic styles. Can you, did you notice any obvious transformation of character, place, application of symbol or transformation of time? Well, so transformation of time and place happened all throughout the first act. There were certainly uh, really clear moments where they would move between Melbourne and New Zealand and the Blue Mountains. So they transformed time uh, through use of projections and also through the use of the actors. So basically, as the actors came on, but they were in a new location, sometimes there were uh, costume changes, but often not. Um, we could see the background of each scene with a um, different projection, so that helps to really clearly 
uh, identify where we were and what we were doing. That was a really nice device that I thought uh, communicated that transformation quite well. They told us at the beginning that they were going to be moving uh, or they were going to be visiting family in New Zealand and also in Melbourne. Uh, and basically we would see uh, the character Kane's uh, Indigenous family, Aboriginal Indigenous family um, in Melbourne, or we would be over in New Zealand with the character of Hera's um, Maori family. Um, so that was quite, uh, quite obvious and quite apparent to the audience. Okay, so quite a stark, with that purposely contrasting in those moments, or was it just quite a deliberate choice to have it change location? What do you mean by it was obvious? Well, I mean, I think that if we were to talk about dramatic elements, I think for me, contrast felt um, the strongest by far. I think that the premise of the show having two different um, two different cultures in the uh, Australian Indigenous families and also in the Maori culture, um, that was really, really clear from the very beginning. I think that the difference between Act 1 and Act 2 in terms of both style and form was really, really clear. And I think that the contrast between culture was just a really uh, important theme. And I think that was probably what I took away from it the most. And do you think that was application of symbol? Why the culture clash? Why that difference? Why that, why that contrast? What did that do in symbolically? Well, the thing is, I think that obviously a performance which uh, is so rooted in these two ancient Indigenous cultures, uh, I think that was always going to be a really strong theme. Uh, in terms of use of symbol, even the acknowledgement of country at the beginning was very symbolic. Um, uh, Uncle Jack Charles did the welcome to country. That was the really important moment to begin the performance because he acknowledged, I am a Boomerang man. This is my land. Welcome to our land, but please be respectful and please um, look after it while you're here. Uh, and I think that that sort of served as a reminder and it ran through the whole performance. Can you talk a little bit about how pathos was manipulated in this piece? Pathos was manipulated in a way which was quite interesting because, of course, while it was a highly comedic show, there were really real moments where the actors on stage were talking about their heritage and their culture and the pain that uh, both the Australian Indigenous and the Maori culture has experienced and how that that still is such a part of their lives. Uh, and so in the audience, there was this real um, emotional connection to those characters and, and we felt so um, sorry and so angry for all of the things that they've experienced. But then at the same time, they would go straight into another joke, uh, which sort of was a little bit jarring at times, but it was so effective just to remind us of uh, of the themes and of the ideas in the performance. All right, fantastic. Why don't we move on to how the characters were created using the expressive skills? Obviously, these, some of these characters might be naturalistic or realistic, but how did the characters move beyond reality of life as lived using the expressive skills? Well, the thing is, I don't know that you would really call the characterization uh, non-naturalistic. Certain aspects of their characterization were were heightened, and uh, in some ways, they were not stereotypes, but they were written to be binary opposites of other characters on stage. So, of course, when we had the characters of Cain and Hera being of um, Indigenous and Maori descent, uh, they had family members that almost came in pairs. So there were brothers who you could draw connections to, 
there were father figures that you could draw a connection to, particularly Uncle Jack and the character of Robert, who was Hera's father. Um, there were some real stark contrasts between them. And so even though they were comic characters, even though they were real characters, um, certain aspects of those characters were heightened, I felt. They were both very happy, kind of positive characters initially. Uh, but then as the performance went on and as, as they sort of reflected on the lives that they've lived, uh, Robert having abandoned his, his family and his children and trying to, trying to make amends for that. And uh, Uncle Mick uh, was the character played by Uncle Jack and he um, had sort of worked so hard. He was part of the stolen generation and he'd worked very hard to make sure that he was there for his family, that he was there for his culture. Um, and that had been sort of a mission of his. And so seeing that, uh, seeing those two characters together and, and speaking was a really powerful moment. Which of the expressive skills do you think were key for the actors creating their characters? I think the actors' voices were probably a really key aspect in terms of creating their, uh, their characters because particularly in the second act, their movement and facial expression wasn't necessarily visible at all times. When they were moving in and out of the audience, it was um, often only their voices that you could hear. So their accents and uh, how they portrayed those characters needed to be really, really clear so that we knew exactly who was talking and um, what was happening around us, even though we might not have been able to see really clearly. Can you talk a little bit about how mood, rhythm and or tension were manipulated? Which one of those three do you think was most clear in this interpretation? I think that probably if we're talking about um, mood, rhythm and tension, I think all of them were quite closely related because I think that tension was used a lot, especially in the second act, to manipulate the moods. Uh, the rhythm of the performance was punctuated by song and really changed drastically between Act 1 and Act 2. First, we became very used to the episodic nature of the scenes in Melbourne in, in New Zealand. Uh, we became very used to seeing these characters' experiences played out um, in contrast to each other. And then the rhythm absolutely shifted when we walked into the wedding scene. Um, we sat down at the table with the families. Uh, it was a completely different. It was a completely different tempo. The tension was manipulated basically through the development of conflict between these two families. As the sort of night went on, as the events continued, uh, tensions escalated between the families. I mean, spoiler alert, but we find out that Hera is pregnant, uh, and some of the family members know, and others don't. So they start to have lots of different conflicts which uh, escalate in different ways. And we, we have this really lovely moment where um, everyone has left except for the band and the band are just playing along to try and alleviate some of that tension, um, which is a really nice comedic moment for the audience as well. Great, that's a strong link between those three. Um, we've obviously talked about contrast or, already. Um, <clears throat> does that is that reveal of the of the pregnancy? Is that the climax of the piece, or would you say climax is used? Is there anticlimax? How is it used to move beyond reality of life as live con conflict and climax? Yeah, I mean, there's really a few climactic moments. As I, as I said, when we find out that Hera is pregnant, it's essentially the close of Act One. Uh, she's just spoken to her soon-to-be mother-in-law. She's just had. Um, 
a mouthful saying, oh, you better look after him kind of thing. And then Kane and Hera look to each other and they say, I don't know what we're going to do. Your family doesn't like me and my family doesn't like you. Um, and how are we going to raise a child in this environment? Uh, so that's a really that's a really powerful moment to end Act 1 on when they're looking forward into the unknown. Um, in Act 2, of course, we see uh, this tension being developed um, in different moments. We wonder whether uh, Heather's father is going to leave for the second time. We wonder whether uh, these family relationships can ever be repaired. There's a really nice moment where they realise that family is all they have uh, and it's really important to hold on to that that connection and and the major conflict uh is there's sorry there's lots of conflicts between the families you mentioned earlier yeah absolutely and it, does that ever manifest itself in a way that moves beyond reality or once again is that quite realistic naturalistic i mean do we see it manifested physically or through lighting or sound does anything happen to showcase the or represent the conflict symbolically it's really interesting because i wouldn't call in any way the second act non-naturalistic it's highly immersive and there's aspects which are certainly... well, well we'd, we'd, we'd never call it naturalist non-naturalistic of course because oh, we don't use that term anymore of course we move not. beyond reality of life as lived of course not but in some aspects i might even go so far as to call it uh naturalistic or or um realistic um certainly it's heightened certainly there are moments of um moments of exaggeration we know that we're watching a play absolutely uh, but the immersive nature of it is quite interesting because essentially it is just a wedding it's as though you were sitting in a wedding watching a whole lot of drama unfold in front of you um, which is I thought was very interesting only because the first act had so many different transformation techniques that were used whereas in act two uh, we see there's no time jumps. It happens in real time. The use of theatre technologies is the only thing that I would say went beyond uh, life as it is lived because uh, the camera sort of followed people to different areas of the art centre so that they could have, I don't know, a little bit of privacy or go to drink a bottle of wine or whatever. But even then, that was done under the guise of one of the actresses was um, filming uh, and trying to capture the wedding. So. Uh, it was projected onto the telly and we got to see that, but I don't think that it was, you know, I think that it was quite, um, quite naturalistic, quite realistic. Apart from the immersive nature, you were in it. You were totally in it. Absolutely. We were watching something unfold around us. Were you a guest at the wedding or were you ignored? No, we were absolutely guests. They welcomed us as family. They asked us to write our names on little name tags. A group of my students were sitting at a table and actually one of the actresses came down, one of the characters came down and sat with them and that became her table. So she was actually interacting with my students as though she'd known them for years. And, oh my goodness, can you believe this? It's so rude. Um, and had this really nice um, interpersonal moment with those specific people. And the same thing was happening with another character on the other side. Uh, at the beginning of Act 2, the actors came around and said, oh, it's good to see you, shook your hand, took a selfie, did whatever. So it very much became the audience. Uh, as I said before, the first act was quite, uh, quite reminiscent of epic theatre insofar that there were lots of jumps, there were uses of uh, projection to signify where we were, use of song to remind us of what we were seeing and that kind of thing. And then in the second act, 
all of a sudden we were no longer alienated, we were fully immersed. That's really great. Uh, so we've talked about use of space in relation to the immersive theatre, definitely use of song and, and symbol throughout. Um, all that Was sound ever used in a way that moved beyond reality of life as lived? Do we ever see sound used, like sound effects or maybe uh, ambient sound or non-diegetic sound? Sound effects don't necessarily come to mind per se. I think the main way that sound was used was, as I said, through those musical interludes. Uh, there was lots of... Um, uh, there were lots of musical instruments that were used to sort of punctuate dialogue or to uh, show where, uh, how characters were feeling and that kind of thing. So in terms of sound as a dramatic element, that's that's the main thing that would come to my mind, I suppose. How were, how were different production areas used in ways that moved beyond reality of life as lived? Yeah, it was really interesting. I think the use of theatre technologies at the beginning to project where we were and to help transform place uh, stands out to me as well. The use of lighting didn't necessarily signify to me that it was being used in a symbolic way. Uh, in fact, it was uh, reasonably minimalistic. In the first act, all of the lights were positioned onto the actors, obviously to delineate the stage from the audience. And then in act two, uh, they actually put lights on us, which showed us that we were part of the performance as well. Um, I can't necessarily off the top of my head think of any ways that sound production was used uh, outside of of the music, although the music was just such a fantastic, um, such a fantastic part of the show, um, really just made it seem so fun, um, and we had so much fun when the musicians were playing. Um, the set was quite interesting in that there was almost none in Act One. There were some props that were used. It was very, very um, fragmented, though. Um, to show an airport, there was only a suitcase that was wheeled on and that kind of thing. Uh, and I think that was really nice because, again, coming back to that contrast between Act 1 and Act 2, we had this, I, I suppose we had this um, real shift in energy and this real shift in tone where we saw the big, long bridal table and we were able to see um, the wedding photos projected onto the TVs that were all around. So in that sense, um, I think that's probably how the production areas were used. Thank you for your time today, Tim Roach. Thank you very much, Nick. That's, uh, it's been great. If you would like to find out more about black ties, visit artcentermelbourne.com.au. Well, that is all from us at The Aside. A big thanks to Tim Roach for jumping on and having a conversation about black ties. If you would like to ask us a question, please do not hesitate to do so at asidepodcast at outlook.com. There are a load of episodes in the bank, so feel free to go through our list of episodes to find one that piques your interest. Thank you very much to Eltham College for letting us record here, to Aaron Searle for providing the music, to Drama Victoria for their ongoing support, and of course, thank you for listening.